Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 30, and John, chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father. And you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness And judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, we're several weeks in now to this series looking at this final table talk, this lengthiest table talk where Jesus is gathered with his disciples, and it's what we call Maundy Thursday, which we'll be celebrating next month, 
uh, with our Tenebrae service, where we remember Jesus preparing his closest friends for what's just around the corner. Now, as, as you heard Ben read that lengthy passage, you'll have noticed that we're looking this morning at the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 16. And it's probably worth noting why we're skipping chapter 15. It's, it's not because there's inappropriate material and young ones in the room. Uh, it's not because it's unhelpful. It's rather that last spring when we were uh, preparing to enter into Holy Season, we did a lengthy series on John 15 where we spent a number of weeks talking about the life of faith and the idea of abiding in Christ. And so having spent multiple weeks on it, This past year, we're skipping over it now as we plow through this lengthy Last Supper or Farewell Discourse in John 13 to 17. It is a long passage, though, and so we're just going to hit a number of key points. As we do so, it's, it's worthwhile to keep the context in mind. Jesus is at a meal, not just any meal. He's at a meal that other Gospels describe great, lengthy, careful preparation for. It's a Passover meal. It's a meal where he is celebrating a a high holy day where he, like other Jews, and he with his Jewish friends in the room, are marking and remembering a way God acted in sizable and significant ways in the past. They're remembering God's action in Egypt in bringing those Jewish slaves into freedom, in liberating them from bondage. Think back to what they must have been remembering, to those primal stories of Israel's early days, days where they saw God act in power, where they saw Moses speak truth to the mightiest man on earth, Pharaoh, where they saw plagues overwhelming the Egyptians with their might and their grandeur, where they saw God lead them out amazingly from bondage, where they saw God guide them by the flame and protect them with the cloud, where they saw The seas opened up where they saw an oncoming army overwhelmed by waters, where they were provided for with bread from on high, manna, quail, which God miraculously fed them, like at a table in the wilderness, and where finally they met God at his mountain, at Mount Sinai, in the second half of the book of Exodus. Remarkable events. But that's not the whole story, is it? And the Old Testament doesn't end there. Because what God does in bringing those Israelites out of Egypt through all those amazing, miraculous, overwhelming works is he means to bring out a people for his own possession. That's what Exodus 19, 6 and 7 say. He means to bring out a people who are going to be like a spouse to him, a bride to whom he will be a groom. He's going to bring out a people who are going to share covenant life and fellowship with him. And of course, what we see is it doesn't go very well. Now, God pulls through. God provides. God makes good on his promises. But we see that of those at that first Passover in Exodus 12, of those seated that day celebrating what God's about to do for them, only two make it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else, the book of Numbers tells us, dies in the wilderness Only their children, only the next generation get to enjoy any of the fruits of God's liberating work. Even Moses himself doesn't make it in. We see that 
those Israelites who on that Passover night believed in God, so many of them grumbled. So many of them saw their faith fritter away. So many of them turned in disobedience, and they didn't enjoy the final fruit of God's provision. And that has to be on these disciples' minds. You remember back as we looked at chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14, you've already got Jesus speaking these remarkable words of how he's going to leave in a little while, and he's already addressed Judas, who's going to betray him in this mysterious way, and he's commanded Judas to go and get about his business, and he's already even spoken to Peter about how Peter, the one who shortly before had confessed him to be the Lord and the Son of God, how he will deny him, how he will leave him. They have to be shaken. They have to be wondering if this is going to play out like that first generation of Jewish followers who started strong and then frittered away. And so it's not for nothing that in our passage, Jesus begins by addressing the fact that their hearts are likely troubled, that there's surely an unrest, maybe an anxiety that is beginning to seep in. And it's that that he addresses. It's that that he longs to provide for here in our passage. And there's two big ways that we see this passage describes his provision for them. The first is that, as we read in chapter 13, having loved his own, Jesus loved them to the end. We saw that at the end of chapter 13, describing his work in washing their feet uh, as he invited them to his table. We see that here. He continues to love them to the end. I don't simply mean that he loves them up to the moment that he's gone, but he loves them unto the goal that is coming. Here in this passage, particularly in verse 14, chapter 14, verse 29, he's going to talk about what's just right around the corner. He's talking about how in a little while he won't be seen, and he is addressing this now so that when that occurs, they will believe. He's clearly noting that there's going to be a real challenge. There's going to be a new threat. There's going to be a new occasion to stumble. And he wants to head it off by addressing them, by alerting them ahead of time. He doesn't want them to walk in and be startled. And so at this final meal, he is talking about things around the corner that they almost can't imagine now, but that they need to be prepared for. They need to be prepped that they might walk into it well. We see this in how, in the passage just prior, he's talked to Peter, and he's addressed Peter in a way that's very different from Judas. He addresses that Peter will have a faithless moment, but Peter is going to be provided for. Peter is not being cast off in the same way. He's not being sent away from the table. He's being provided for. He's being prepared so that he might repent so that he might continue on. And so there's something instructive here that Jesus continues to love us, his own, to the very end. He doesn't just start the Christian journey, but he provides for us every step of the way. He doesn't merely provide baptism, which is crucial, but he also provides a table that we might find sustenance and strength each and every day, week by week, not merely from those beginning moments of our faith, but also to our very dying days. We'll come back to that idea. The second thing he does in loving them to the end, 
Having alerted them what's coming, he's now going to send a helper. He's going to give a provision. Now, Ben alluded to this last week, this idea of uh, the helper or the advocate. The term that's used here in verses 16 and 17 and throughout the passage is the term paraclete. And it's a, it's a term that can mean a variety of things. It can g- describe perhaps most likely an advocate in a courtroom setting, someone who is going uh, to argue a case, someone who's going to present evidence. It could also describe someone who's going to be a comforter, who's going to offer consolation in some sort of situation of, of trial, of deep sorrow, of mourning. And it's probably most likely that it, it's meant to be an advocate here because throughout the gospel account of John, you've got this emphasis on a trial and on a courtroom setting that appears again and again. And especially as you get uh, to what happens on Thursday evening and Good Friday of Holy Week, there's this lengthy discussion. Just like you get an expanded description of what happens at this meal, you get an expanded description of Jesus being on trial. And so here, the Holy Spirit is given as an advocate, uh, someone pleading a case and arguing a case. In either case, though, whether it's a comforter or an advocate, whatever sort of helper this is, Jesus is providing someone that is only needed by someone who is in a situation of threat. You don't go to seek out comfort when all is well. And nobody really desires to just go hang out with a lawyer. That's, that's not typical. You seek out counsel when you're under threat legally, and you seek out a comforter when you're in a situation of sorrow and mourning and overwhelmedness. And so Jesus' provision of a helper says something rather profound about us. It's one of those gifts that is sort of a backhanded gift. It's a provision It's gracious, it's effective, it's necessary, but it's necessary and effective precisely because of something that is so terribly weak in and about us. We are those who do need comfort. We are those who do need an advocate. Damien addressed in our first sermon in this series the idea that we're oftentimes timid to admit this. We don't like to strut our sin We don't like to own up to our need. I oftentimes am struck by this, even uh, in a simple way that others wouldn't know, but how often am I willing to actually type into my phone's maps function that I am in fact lost? How often am I willing to own up to the fact that I need guidance versus trying to actually just finagle my way and find my way to my destination on my own? I'm so timid to seek out and to receive help from others. And we are so timid to own up to what's dirty and shameful about us and to what's weak and dependent about us. If you want a somewhat comical global example of this, the Slovenian psychoanalyst Slava Žižek points out that there's something really telling about the fact that the one thing that's virtually universal in the modern world is that homes have toilets and that it's almost equally universal that they're all white. That's really strange. It's not an innocent place. Of all the places in your house, probably the dirtiest is the bathroom. 
requires the most maintenance, and yet we go and we purchase toilets that are plain, innocent white. We like to cover over that which is dirty about us. We, we like to paper over and pretend that there is nothing dark, that there's nothing shameful, there's nothing sinful, there's nothing needy and dependent in our midst. We like to stick out our chests. We like to hold up our chins. We like to show that we're in control. And Jesus says, as he sits with his friends at the table, that we need a helper. But he doesn't just say that we need a helper. He provides a helper. And he doesn't just provide a helper. He provides a helper that it's good to have. It is better for him to leave and for us to have this help than for him to stay. Because the helper that he provides is as God as Jesus is God. The helper that he provides is just as divine and powerful and good as Jesus is divine and powerful and good. And he'll go on and he'll say that this one will dwell with you and he will now dwell in you. This one will make his home within you. Now, a few minutes ago, as Ben led us in a prayer of illumination, we prayed that God would guide us by his word and spirit. We pray that God would speak a word, a word from the outside that that we would hear that would confront us. It would confront our despair when we oftentimes think things can't ever be good. It would confront our sorrow when we think we can't possibly find a peaceful uh, comfort. That it would provide our complacency with a startling word that would jolt us out of our laziness, spiritually and morally speaking. We need a word from the outside that would come to us, that would bring God to us and deliver his truth to us. We need a word. But those of you who are parents, and all of us who've been kids, we know that words can be said aplenty and not received. We need not merely a word from the outside that washes over us, but we need receptivity. We need teachableness. We need not merely to read, but to learn and to mark and to inwardly digest, as Christians have prayed through the centuries, that we would inwardly digest God's Word, that it would settle in us, that it would transform us, that we wouldn't brush it off, that we wouldn't glaze over it, that we wouldn't filter it according to what's cool with us and what affirms what we already like and are, but that we would receive it and be challenged by it, that it would cut piercing through bone and marrow, soul and spirit, as God's life-giving word. And so we need a spirit at work within us, reshaping our ears and our eyes and molding our very hearts. And so Christians have spoken of how we need an external word and we need a spirit at work inwardly. And that's what Jesus is describing here. He's describing this idea that God, in giving this helper, the Holy Spirit, is now not merely going to act in our place and on our behalf, but God's going to go a step further and God's going to work in your very heart, bringing you and keeping you in the faith, making you malleable and moldable and transformable, that you would be one who would again and again throughout your life be changed by God's gracious word. Kosuke Kuyama says that if Jesus is the answer, 
Jesus is not an easy answer. If Jesus is the answer, he's the kind of answer that's described by crucifixion. The Apostle Paul says the cross is foolishness. It's not the way any of us would do it. It's not how they would have planned it in the first century. It's not what you and I would typically think of as an act of love and salvation. But there it is. Jesus is a strange provision. Jesus is is not what we would cook up were we to imagine truth and goodness and beauty. He's not what we would draw out if we were to imagine and idealize what God must be like. But there he is, and he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we receive him, so that we're not offended by him, but we're challenged, so that we're not rejecting of him, but that we're transformed by him, so that we're not those who would convict him and cast him away, but we're actually conformed to him. And so the first thing we see in this passage is Jesus loves his own to the very end by alerting them to what's coming and by sending a helper. But the second thing we see here is he talks more about how this helper provides for him. Specifically, we could say he talks at length about how the Spirit keeps us, and he talks at length about how the Spirit grows us. First of all, how does the Spirit, the helper here, keep us amidst all the trials that are coming just around the corner? As I said, Jesus is not easy to get. It's not for nothing that throughout his life he's misunderstood. His own don't receive him. His opponents don't always perceive that he's a threat. Uh, His religious leaders sometimes are out to get him. And his disciples, well, they have their moments, but oftentimes they're as baffled as the rest. It's rather notable that almost no one seems to understand him. Why? Well, first and foremost, he's different. He's different. He is God. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. Of all the people around, he's the only one who has life and existence and strength and happiness in and of himself. Can you imagine how different that would be from your life? Can you imagine how different it would be to know that you had existed forever? That you, at the end of the day, ultimately, you have strength in and of yourself. At the end of the day, you have wisdom and knowledge in and of yourself. Now, he experiences things as a human, of course. That's true, but he is also always God. And so it's not surprising, if we're honest, that he is really hard to get a handle on. He is strange. We could say he is a funky character precisely because he's one of a kind, Right? Think about how we get to know people. And in our day, we almost always immediately jump to either sociological or therapeutic categories. We think about people as personality types, or we think about people as demographic types. Right? There's a lot of insight in both of those approaches to understanding others, understanding ourselves. What's common about the sociological approach and the therapeutic or psychological approach, they both work comparatively right? You, you know people of a certain personality type or of a certain demographic reality, and you're making comparisons. 
right? Based on uh, commonalities. Both disciplines require that you have more than one person you're getting to know. They always work by comparison, right? That's why sample sizes matter when you look at any given study, either psychologically or sociologically. What happens when you deal with somebody who is quite literally one of a kind? Jesus is the only one who is God incarnate. By definition, you cannot psychologize him. You cannot simply assess him sociologically like others. He is in a class by himself, and that means he is mysterious and challenging, and we ought to own up to that. If he is good and if he is truthful, if he is what he says he is and what we have confessed him to be, then he is by definition strange and hard to get a handle on. And that's the only hope that we've got that he might be saving, that he might be gracious, that he might be able to help. And so the first thing we see is that the Holy Spirit helps us get Jesus. This passage says it in all sorts of ways. 1426, the Spirit teaches 16.8, the Spirit convicts. 16.13, He guides and He speaks and He declares. 16.14, He glorifies Christ. And in the portion of the passage that we skipped over in 15.26, He bears witness about Christ. That's why He's called the Spirit of Christ so often through the Bible. One key element is that as Jesus says here, He doesn't say other things, but He testifies about Jesus Christ. That's how you can discern God's Spirit from false spirits, that He exalts and He points us again and again to Jesus Christ, helping us to understand more powerfully who He is. It's important to remember, though, that in doing that, the Spirit is a person, not just a power. The Spirit is a person, not just a tool. The Spirit is a person we relate to, not just an instrument. We easily and we we often tend to treat people as instruments, right? We use people. We think of people as resources. I was reminded of this reading of someone who said that their spouse has taken to addressing uh, Alexa and Siri with the language of please and thank you. And, And their spouse has done this precisely so that they don't develop a pattern of treating others as simple tools, trying to personalize, even in this case, someone who's not really a someone. Noting, secondly, the spouse is doing this so that when the machines take over, they'll remember she was kind and they'll be merciful, right? Um, But the the notion that, that that would be a challenge, that we tend to instrumentalize people, is especially a temptation here, that we can think of the Spirit as some sort of juice, some sort of steroid, some sort of power rather than a person. Why? Because we've not seen the Spirit. Because we so often, we, we treat persons as those that we can encounter visually, right? You know this. What was a major turning point in uh, dealing with crisis pregnancies? As soon as ultrasounds can be out there and someone can visualize the notion of a person, it's one thing to say to somebody in a challenging situation, that's a human being in there. It's very different for them to be able to see that there is a person there, to be able to see a a heartbeat, hear a heartbeat, and so forth, right? Um, Precisely because we are visual and auditory in that way, and precisely because you'd never see the Holy Spirit, it's especially tempting to treat the Holy Spirit as being less than personal, 
But here the Spirit is a a person who teaches, a person who guides, a person who glorifies and declares and convicts, and who does so always and everywhere, drawing our attention to Jesus. And in doing that, in drawing our attention to Jesus, the Spirit always does a second thing. He doesn't just keep us fixed on Jesus, but He grows us to be more like Jesus. Notice throughout this passage another recurring pattern. The first pattern is the ways the Spirit teaches and points and guides and clarifies who Jesus is. The second pattern is again and again Jesus saying, if you love me, you will. If you love me, you will. If you love me, you will. We see it in a variety of ways here. 1415, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 1423, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced, but they didn't. We're still on the way. We see it again in 15.10 and 15.7, repeating those, if you loves me, love me, you'll keep my word. My word or commandment will abide in you. There's an emphasis here that we are being formed by this Spirit to be those who behave a certain way, who love Christ and whose love takes or manifests itself in a particular way, in keeping Christ's word or his commandment. What does that mean? He doesn't leave it vague or ambiguous. There are lots of commandments in the world. There are lots of mores and expectations, and there are lots of stipulations in Scripture. But Jesus is talking about one very particular thing earlier in our passage. In chapter 13, after he's washed their feet, in verse 34 we read, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The Spirit, you see, draws us out of ourselves to fix our sights on Jesus and entrust ourselves to Him, but the Spirit also draws us out of ourselves to invest our resources and our very selves, our hopes and dreams, in others around us, to look at others as gifts and opportunities for blessing, not as tools and resources to use. C.S. Lewis spoke in his essay, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. We can go a step further here. When we come to this table in a few minutes, you'll see there are no ordinary people. There are immortal people. And we can go further than Lewis said in that essay. There are people for whom God in eternity chose to show love to. There are people for whom Christ on a certain Friday shed his blood for. There are people for whom the Holy Spirit has come and indwelt them. There are people who, men and women, are friends and heirs and the very children of God. And as we come to the table, we come not merely in faith looking upward to Christ to receive from Him, but we also come in faith looking outward, asking how, like Christ, we can wash one another's feet. We can pour ourselves out in service and care to others. And so the same Holy Spirit that's given to keep our faith solid and strong, fixed on Christ, is the same Spirit who's given to open us up and point our eyes outward to others in love. And friends, we are in need of help and of comfort and an advocate. We're in need not merely of baptism, of grace at the beginning, but of a supper, a meal, an occasion week after week where we see that 
We need gospel in the present tense, and we need grace for every occasion. And Jesus, Jesus loved them to the end. And if you bear his name on you, if by faith you are his and he is yours, he has love for you, not merely to death's door, the end of this life, but to the end or the goal for which God has set you. Let's pray and ask that God would provide that for us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we can listen in to your son as he spoke to his friends then and there. And we thank you that just as they bore his name, so we too by baptism and by faith, we bear your name as well. And we know that the promises given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Peter, James, and John, that they are ours as well. We know that we will too experience doubts and difficulties and trials without and within. And we pray that your Holy Spirit and Helper would be our comfort. We pray that he would be our advocate. We pray that he would keep our hope sure and our chin up as we march onward and upward in the calling that you give us. We thank you that there is grace still more. We thank you that there is grace for this day and for every occasion yet to come. We thank you ultimately for Jesus, who is grace itself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.